Welcome back, everyone, to season two of Broadcast Revisited. We took a little break for the holidays, and now now we're here to bring you a whole new slate of iconic limited series. I am Kate Royal. I'm Carl Del Bono. Um, yeah, this this season is is truly iconic. We're starting with probably the most iconic of miniseries. Like literally, I would say in the top ten like exemplars of the genre. Totally, this made such a huge splash when it happened, and has come to mean so much to yeah. so many people. Yeah. A lot of oh. people, you know, this is like the definitive version of this piece, which I know we're being so like secretive about it. I know. Like, <laughs> we like still haven't said It's literally title. like in the title. We're like, can you guess? <laughs> um, we are talking about the 1995 BBC miniseries adaptation of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Yes. Directed by Simon Langton, screenplay Andrew Davies, which like, who do you want sort of Austining your life up? Yeah. And we have a very special guest with us today. <laughs> yes, we do. Someone who loves this miniseries as much as I think anyone could. Ashley Kaiser. Ashley Kaiser. Ashley Kaiser is a poet and a writer based in Chicago with recent publications in Quarterly West and ASAP Journal. Her work often takes inspiration from Austin, uh, from Jane Austen's era, ranging from Lord Byron to Fancy Cakes. She isn't sure how many times she's seen the BBC Pride and Prejudice, so she's going with the biblical 40. <laughs> Probably 40 times. Is that a is that a rough is that <laughs> Give or take, do you think it's more or less than that in the ballpark? I, I don't. I actually don't think it's that many, but I okay. but I know how many, so that that kind of tells me enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hi, guys! Thank you so much for having me on this show and finally giving me a platform <laughs> that I've wanted for so long to talk about Janiana and this particular miniseries. Um, I'm, I'm very, very excited. Thank you so much for being with us. We're so excited. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm very excited to just like sit and let the two of you talk. Because <laughs> I just really enjoy listening to you two talk about things. <laughs> I mean, that's the reason I was here was to listen to you guys talk. But, you know, I think I think it'll be a nice... A nice three-person volley. I'm very like, where do we even where do we even begin with this? I kind of feel like elephant in the room. Like I I feel like for Jane Eyre, it was more about like when we did when we did that episode, it was actually sort of like a 
okay, let's look at every single adaptation and kind of like talk about them. For this, it's really going to be two. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and I feel bad even doing that because it's really not fair. Like they're doing such different jobs that it's not really, it's not really fair to be like, this one is either better or worse. They just, they just are, you know, you have yeah. the insanely brightly lit detail oriented <laughs> true to the novel six hour miniseries. And then you have the sort of like moody and emotional, um, you know, pack in as much as possible, but like, don't spend a ton of time on dialogue. If you can, if you can do it with just, you know, a shot of somebody's hand or somebody looking at something like, let's do that route. You know, a lot of natural light candles, fireplaces, you know what I mean? Um, very lyrical. So that version, very, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a legato piece instead of a staccato piece. Mm. Um, and that's the 2005 um that's joe wright right yeah. yeah oh yeah um kira knightley matthew mcfadden fad fadian and then like every actress who became hugely famous within like five years after that they stacked the deck that is a stacked <laughs> but the thing that i love about that cast is that like it's a stacked deck without even knowing it like who knew who rosamund pike or carrie mulligan were well, at that Mulligan, that was her didn't she um didn't she like there was some sort of like in interesting um story about her actually getting cast in that where she like she pulled some like sneaky mcgeeky stuff like she was like they were not interested at all in her and she was like no you have to see me like please put oh. me in i'll be like i'll be like the least interesting sister no, i i actually look like an angel from heaven i need to be the most beautiful sister <laughs> like, look at me. literally yeah that version the 2005 one like i i go to that when i want to be in an atmosphere of like just total feminine beauty like I just want to follow like a long unbroken shot with that like delicate piano music um I don't like I, I just like that's what I want and for the BBC like six hour version I don't go to it necessarily for like I don't know like accuracy because it is like its own take on the novel but I do think that it understands that Austin was a really funny writer in a way that a lot of adaptations of her work do not. So like, I wanna see like acerbic, sharp, just like caricatures. Um, that That's, I, I think the, the primary difference, um, you know, of, of course among many between the two adaptations for me is that the BBC version is just like really funny. Yeah. Totally. That was one of the biggest criticisms I think of Kira Knightley's take on Elizabeth is that she wasn't like snappy witty enough. Like all of her wit was sort of like under her breath, like comments. Mm. Yeah, she's like feisty, but she's just like mad all the time. <laughs> I yeah, she... I don't find her performance as like specific as Jennifer Ely. Jennifer Ely, she is so, she's so darling in this. 
her eyes just sparkle the whole time. It's so crazy. Like she, I mean, number one, she's being blasted with floodlights, but number two, she, she does like, she leads with the head and acts from the heart. Like you see her walk into scenes and you're just like, oh my God, it's like she's being like pulled into the scene. It's so crazy. I, I would absolutely rather just like hang out with Jennifer Ely's Elizabeth Bennett. Like she just seems like a cool woman. And that's not to say that Keira Knightley is not like, I mean, I'd also love to hang out with Keira Knightley, but. 100%. If I was like really beautiful, I would sit with those uh, Bennett sisters and just be thin. (laughs) Wear little to no fabric and just be like, oh yeah, we're going to dance. But I think Jennifer Ely is just like, she, she has a warmth that Kira Knightley does not have. Definitely. Sorry, Ashley, did I cut you off from saying something? I wasn't gonna say anything that um, uh, intelligent, just just that everyone in the 2005 version is hot, even the unlikable characters, they are all, they're, they're all hot and then- Oh yeah. Yeah, no, everyone is, is tens. <laughs> and then Kira Knightley is, and then like uh, 11 and up. <laughs> Every one of those Bennett sisters is rail thin, supermodel gorgeous. <laughs> right. J- like even Mary is just like so s- superfluous. Like, right, like Mary played by Tallulah Riley, who is like a sex robot on Westworld. Right. <laughs> She's the Trumpy one. <laughs> That's that's your ugly daughter. Yeah. <laughs> the baseball stadium lighting of <laughs> version, everyone is just hideous. It's so sad. Like everyone except it's like it's shocking. It tr- she's the only one who catches that light and makes it work. It's just everyone else is squinting in every scene, just being like uh-huh <laughs> and then what did he say oh no <laughs> yeah no it's i mean if anything truly what this miniseries does is cement that colin firth is truly one of the hottest people alive because like he withstands sorry my cat is now here and screaming at me uh. um he withstands fluorescence whatever they're throwing at him he looks good he looks amazing and it's sort of like i think i like took that note what did i say oh i was like colin firth is like five levels of hot above everyone else in this series but yeah no this this miniseries is like not afraid to make these people look really bad all of the hairstyles on all of the women are just, you know, even if they're, even if they're accurate, like, I mean, and who doesn't love accuracy, but like, boy, oh boy, it's just, let's take the least attractive curls and put them in the very front, take the majority of the hair and just wet it and pin it back. <laughs> it's yep. just, the whole thing is horrendous. Yep. I want oil on your face. 
I want a little bit of a mustache on some of you. Let's and your you're going to be fully lit from the front in every shot. <laughs> Good luck. I think that the actress who plays Lydia, like, honestly, kind of hot. Oh, totally. She's re She's got a really, like, randiness about her that's, like, sexy. She's, like, well, she's acting, she's doing this role of, like, a 15-year-old girl as, like, a, like, slutty divorcee. You know, like, <laughs> she's an abfab character. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in AdFab, she was the um, super shy, dowdy daughter, and so like she's like taken all the energy of that show and just channeled it into like the out of control slut daughter. Yeah, I love. I love how she plays Lydia. Yeah. So magnificent. That is some like perfect casting. Mm -hmm. Like. Of the three, maybe like perfectly cast people in this, she's one of them. <laughs> Who are the I others? I think Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth. And no just, one else. Me? No, I, I mean, I can't say that. I mean, the dad, the, the dad who does nothing, does nothing, which is, is in the text. He, mm -hmm. he doesn't do anything. Um, I don't know. It's not like any of the casting is bad per se, but like yeah. those three, like I just think Julia Salawa in the in that role is like so perfect. Yeah, she, she is just like bouncing around trying to get noticed the whole time, and I'm like, I can relate to that. Yeah, you're at the party. You've like stolen one of the officers' swords. <laughs> I literally wrote, "She's got a knife." <laughs> Like, that is the game I would be playing. <laughs> Who wants to see me swing a sword? <laughs> Just horrendously obnoxious. Oh, man. I do also love um, David Bambers as Mr. Collins. Oh, my God. I love so him so much. Just, like, like unctuousness personified. Yeah. All oil. Ugh. Looks like he's having a blast. <laughs> totally. I absolutely, like, if I could be cast in a Pride and Prejudice adaptation, I would 100% want to play Mr. Collins. I think I could do I, a, a very credible job in that role. I would kill to see you play that role. <laughs> you would be so... I feel like you would, like, split the difference between Tom Hollander and the 1995 Collins. Like... I love Tom Hollander's though because he's so he's so disconnected that you almost see the lights go out behind his eyes like when he's doing all of these like these practiced compliments. Yeah. And he's like, "Oh, such fabulous boiled potatoes." And you're just like, "You're not even in you're not even in this room." Like <laughs> totally. You do not care at all. You are just trying to do what you think is like the best thing to do. Yeah. It's so perfect. Yeah. But like absolutely the most fun character, I think, in in all of Pride and Prejudice. Completely. Except maybe Lydia, because like she's just a slut having a good time. She's amazing. Lady Catherine de Bourgh would be so much fun to play. I would love to see you as Lady Catherine de Bourgh, Carl. 
I mean, that's pretty perfect casting. Yeah. <laughs> the the Judy Denchness of that 2005 version, boy oh boy. Mm. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> let's let's begin at the beginning. Episode one. Part one. And I mean, as we did with Jane Eyre, we gotta talk about <laughs> You can't talk about the BBC miniseries canon without unpacking the put it together in five minutes title credit sequence. Okay, did you see that I based my entire collage on just that crumpled pink silk? I was like, we are going, we are going pink lady, <laughs> like silk tossed on a floor. <laughs> and then going from there. When I was watching the title credits with Kate recently, I think our comparisons for that just swirl of satin range from like vagina pink to cream saver. Like there's just, it's a very evocative kaleidoscopic satin experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is exactly what I said to Kate. I said, this is my like pussy pink fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> like part in my language, I'm so sorry. We can cut that if we want, but that's, that's exactly what I had in my head. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like Jane Austen and pussy pink. <laughs> but, but how dare I say that? Because how dare we um, discredit Jane Austen for the, uh, the very serious, serious satirist that she was, and only that. Oh my God, can, can, I, can I? Yeah, that's my invitation for Ashley to just go. Because I do think before we need to, before we like go through this show episode by episode, I just like want to give Ashley this opportunity to um, state her like grand unified theory of why many people feel the way they do about Jane Austen. Oh, I'm ready. Well, no, and, and I'll, be, I'll be curious to hear, you know, if you guys have comments about this as well. But um, I, but this argument has been coming up a lot with Bridgerton coming out yeah. last month. You know, this that is kind of part of the Regency romance bodice ripper world where there is like a lot of crossover with like Austin fans. Um, and, you know, just like a lot of tropes that are like kind of in her books that Regency romances will draw on and, and replicate. Um, so you'll get these same takes over and over again that are like, how dare you associate this trash with the great Jane Austen um, and just really, really want to um, Rescue Austin from her mostly female fans who who also like you know like romance novels and girly shit I guess for lack of a better world yeah. like who are deep in the like pussy pink kind of like <laughs> literary right. you know cream saver um. And it's like, it's, I want to thread sort of a tricky needle as I explain why this is a dumb take to have, because <laughs> it's true that like Austin didn't write like romance novels in the way that we would 
think about them and consume them today. Like, and like certainly not in the way that Bridgerton is. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, certainly not. And like, it's, it's more of a difference than just like, in genre or like sexiness and like, and, and I'll come back to that. But, um, you know, like a comedy classically ends in marriage but we don't call Shakespeare's comedies chiclet. And, you know, that has as much to do with his gender as it does with, with his genius, I think. Um, but when you hear those arguments like, oh, you know, Austin isn't Bridgerton, how dare you? They're, they're not really talking about that. Like, it's not really about the history of women writers and not being taken as seriously as, as male writers in the canon. Um, they're more concerned, I think, with with women readers and women audiences. And you know, that's like the whole history of the novel. Like ever since its origins, people were wringing their hands over silly women, um, like sitting around eating bonbons and filling their heads with fiction. I mean, like, like that's Madame Bovary, you know? So so that that's the first problem that is that this is basically like a I'm not like other girls. <laughs> argument um totally no like like were, were these readers like these fans of austin are defending themselves as much as they are her mm -hmm. and like not one like a dumb girl um so that's that's just like annoying but the real i think that what, what's even worse than that is that they don't even understand why austin is great and i think that they, they root her greatness in like oh well this is like um you know, she's a feminist figure or she's historically important or you can like learn about the history of capitalism through her work. And you know, all, all that I think is true, but they don't say like, oh, actually she was just like a really fucking good writer and she was really funny and like, you know, created these characters who, who we all still know and, and can recognize really easily. Um, you know, and sorry, this is like so, um, this is kind of indulgent, but I just wanted to like, I, I pulled out this line from Virginia Woolf that I wanted to read to you guys that I, I love like about what she says of uh, Austin's characters. Um, so find this real quickly. Uh, she said, she encircles them with the lash of a whip-like phrase, which as it runs around them, cuts out their silhouettes forever. And I love that so much. And like, for me, that is the crucial difference between Pride and Prejudice and something like Bridgerton. Because when I finished Bridgerton, I couldn't even remember anyone's name. I was like, is there, was her name Phoebe? Or I, I, I couldn't tell you. Right. I, so, I absolutely forgot every character's name from that show as well. I remember someone got eaten out in a staircase. Oh. <laughs> and, and then promptly fun. dumped. It <laughs> kind of, it was like, oh man. <laughs> Congruous staircase cuddlingus. <laughs> but but I I will know forever. And no matter how it's adapted, like we're always gonna recognize, like, oh, this is a Mr. Collins, this is a maybe Catherine de Berg. And like they're real people. So so her their creator doesn't need to be rescued. It doesn't mm -hmm. need to be associated from the the people who who love her and love her work. And I don't think that we're then any of us are making a just let people enjoy things argument because you know like of course like you can like the, like these these are very rich 
texts and it's a very interesting period in history so like yeah totally like analyze it as much as you want as as uh, deeply as you want but I, I do think that it speaks to a larger discomfort too about like people need to find this justification for why art is important by saying that it's you know it's edifying or historically significant or makes us better people mm-hmm. when an art is just like its own justification and, and you don't need to it doesn't need to um apologize for itself for like not right. being uh, obviously useful well and i i think it's it does all come down to what you were saying before that like i think part of that argument and the need to you know locate this more complicated social comment like to to you know prioritize and create this hierarchy of what she was actually trying to talk about in these novels is just a way of, you know, the the male gatekeepers of the canon of many centuries and the, the academics who now, you know, teach her work or whatever, uh, it's, it's, they're confounded about how this woman and these stories have withstood time and have been so prominent in the canon for all this time if they're just frivolous girl books how can that possibly be and it's what you said because they're just fucking good like they're just good books and they're beautiful characters and they're beautiful stories and they're about all these things because like they reflect life you know and like yes of course they're about the the silly comings and goings of rich people but it's like and I and we had this conversation before, but like, there is not a single thing in Chekhov that you can't originate in Jane Austen. Like mm. everything in his plays that he's talking about comes, and she predated him, but we don't question his place in the canon, you know? But it's just like, I- it just seems like there's this like pathological need to like, I have to dissect this and and actually, you know, oh, it's because she's a social commentator. That's why that's why these stories have have stood the test of time so much. God forbid it's because women just fucking like these books. <laughs> right. Well, and you see that so much with like anything that sort of is or feels inherently female. So like, you know, Twilight or boy bands or anything that anything that a teenage girl might like, the immediate reaction is to devalue it and say that it's the, you know, the coming of the end times and how, you know, fucking terrible it is and how it's ruining society. And you know what I mean? Like whatever it may be, but it, you, you brought up that great comparison between Jane Austen and Chekhov. Jane Austen can write about these things and be honest about her view of these things and like the silliness of people and of human nature and in that kind of capitalist society and not be fucking cynical and right and Chekhov it is it is the exact same thing only drenched in cynicism I don't agree with that but I don't want to like go into a debate about Chekhov right now (laughs) that's that'll be a bonus episode okay yeah, we've got to focus because Mr. Bingley's coming to town. He's got a lot of money. 
and no wife. <laughs> That's right. The Netherfield Hall has been let at last. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't love this opening. I mean, I get what we're, we're seeing this sort of like, ooh, like horses pounding hooves and then like she starts running too. But I was like, show me, show me the girls first. Like show me, show me Elizabeth first. I don't need to hear these two dudes talk yet. Like we don't meet them until two chapters from now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was my instinctive. That was my first thought. I also love how in that scene, like that opening scene, when he's like, oh, you know, this will like this is like his it's not Pemberley, but I guess it'll it'll do in a pinch. Right. This estate. This massive home. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we meet the Bennets. Yeah. Mrs. Bennett just being as obnoxious as she can be. She's giving, giving you the full vocal range of a spoken British soprano. I love to see it. Yeah. I do sort of, I do feel like this miniseries is less, but I, again, I think this like goes back to like it being more in line with, with the characterizations in the book that like, I think this, this adaptation is like much less generous to Mrs. Bennett than, um, than the 2005 one. Totally. Although I don't want to keep doing, like, I don't want to keep doing the, like... I know, yeah. Comparison, because I really didn't do that while I was watching it. No. I do think that that speaks to, like... I mean, like, yeah, I, again, like, we don't have to keep going back and forth. But um, it, I, I do always kind of laugh just be, because, like, their their family life is is really so gentle in the um, to write version. And... Here, the, uh, Mr. Bennett can barely conceal his absolute contempt for Mrs. Bennett and for most of his daughters. He's just sort of quietly like getting drunk on port in the library and comes out to be like, wow, they're so, they are so dumb. And <laughs> his character is. And I love, and I think Mrs. Bennett is, is hilarious in, um, in the series. So it, it is like, I mean, the, I think the the acerbic humor is sometimes at at its sharpest when it's when they're at home with the Bennets. Mm -hmm. I love that this version gives you the option of sort of like bathing in the warm, familiar waters of this world for six hours. <laughs> like if that's what you need that day, like this is the version to be watching. You know what I mean? Instead of watching like a couple different Jane Austen movies, like you get to just like put this on and just immerse yourself. It's it's for many years been like an exercise in self care to watch this. Like it, I don't know. Oh, Opus agrees with me. Yeah. I don't want to say like I find it comforting because that makes it. It's like as if there's nothing to be um, to like really dig in here and like there's so much that I want to guys about but like 
yeah, this is a very like soothing uh, viewing for me. Totally. I oh, remember yeah. it. It can be comforting moment. without, it, it's both comforting and rich. Totally. I had a friend growing up who this was like her, if she had a sick day, this was like her like on the couch sipping chicken soup. Like this was what she would put on. Mm-hmm. And it made it, that makes like so much sense to me. No, absolutely. Yeah. I never really, I didn't get into the whole Austin-ness until college. Um, and like after that, the 2005 movie came out and then I sort of like bought all the books and like gobbled them up. Um, and I saw this miniseries for the first time, I think like when I, whenever I got Hulu. Um, so I've watched it like a few times by now, but like it wasn't something that I had growing up like on all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I think one of the things that I like in this, cause I, I do, I have read this book. It's one of the books I have read. <laughs> um, but I, I absolutely remember um, in the book, and it's totally true in this, that like for as caring and, and truly, you know, there for her sisters as, as Lizzie is for a lot of it, like she's, she's really embarrassed by them a lot uh-huh. of the time. Yeah. Totally. And and there are things they do that she makes known to them as being embarrassing. And that happens in this miniseries. That and that doesn't really happen in the other one cuz that was I read it uh in high school a couple years after I'd seen the Joe Wright version. And I think that that that, that adaptation it just doesn't like really go into the complexities of her relationship with each of the sisters but in this one you get like from the jump that like she is embarrassed by Lydia and she agrees with the snobs in the room who think Lydia is like you know doing no favors to the family like there's a moment in the first episode where Lydia like snorts while she's laughing and Lizzie like scolds her for it and it's like stop looking so fucking poor and dumb I want to like latch onto that real quick because I, I, I was, you know, thinking about this um, to, to you know, prepare to talk to you guys. I was thinking about in this first episode, particularly, and, you know, throughout the series, the importance of um, laughter to the story, because yeah, like early, like these girls and the mother, like they have these, like their voices are so grating and, like high pitched and loud and they snort laugh and they're just like noisy. Um, but also like in that first scene when uh, when Darcy, uh, excuse me, when Darcy and um, Lizzie first interact and he snubs her and insults her, she like he sees her across the room kind of like laughing at him. And, and, and that is such a, like, like Darcy like being laughed at is, such a fraught thing for him. Yeah. He's not to be teased. 
that is something about this version that was just like, I made a note about it. Like this crowd cannot help looking directly at the person they're gossiping about. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh my God, Becky. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and Rachel's right there and she's like, are you talking about me? <laughs> Stop. I can hear you and see you. <laughs> it's true. Oh, sorry. Oh no, no, no. I was I was just like when when Darcy's talking to Bingley and, and it's just like, oh, you know, she, she's tolerable but but not handsome enough to tempt me. It's like she's sitting right literally like right next Like absolutely within earshot of you. <laughs> Yeah. You're supposed to be the one with good manners in this room. What is right? And I do think that's something that I really like about this is that it like it gets the kind of like catty gossip wit of of this novel and and so many other like I think Emma is like the apex of that in terms of oh, Jane yeah. Austen novels where it's like you know, no, she's like, she's very biting, you know? And like, I loved that new um, Emma adaptation because like Emma was like, you know, kind of a bitch. And cause Emma yeah. is kind of a bitch. Absolutely. You know, and like the, the, the only thing that they had to do in a room like this is talk shit about the other people in the room. I also wonder like how many generations of particularly women who date men have like had men neg them and be like emotionally unavailable and they'll be like, oh, he's like Darcy. Because Dart, like, if someone, like, so, like, for context, right, like, um, they're they're at the ball, or, like, a dance at the assembly rooms in the town, and Darcy won't dance with Lizzie and makes this comment that, he, that she's, like, not, like, attractive enough for him. Like, if someone said that about me, that I wasn't hot enough for them, I would hate them forever. I would never talk to them again. And, and I, I wonder how much of, like, Darcy's evolution through the story, it, like, has influenced women. Like young women hear that and then they're like, mm, step one. <laughs> <laughs> Love is blooming. He told me I wasn't hot. I think this Wickham is very handsome. <gasps> yes. Wait, really? Yeah. He is like very severe chin wise and he is like 55 years old. He's cute and he flirts with Lizzie and isn't a dick about it. So I'm I'm with her when she's like, yeah, what's <laughs> up? <laughs> I like I also, I'll sit I'm, with you at this party. <laughs> I love Crispin Bonham Carter as Bingley. He's such a- Oh, he's so cute. He's such a beautiful dope. Yeah, I mean, that's Bingley for you. Completely. 
And you know what? Jane also is kind of a beautiful dope. Okay. <laughs> I don't want... <laughs> <laughs> They're oh. just like the hot idiots. <laughs> this is like, this is the thing. <laughs> and I don't want to sound mean. But like, the, you know, everyone knows, everyone knows who's who's who in the family. Like, you're the hot one, you're the smart one, you're the, you know, whatever. Oh, I know exactly what you're going to say. I know I'm 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 so awful. Like come after me if you must. Like Jane is supposed to be the hot one. Like Jane is supposed to be like the beautiful one. Yeah. And is it Susanna Harker? Is that who who plays Jane? Sure. Like she is beautiful. It's just like they kind of go out of their way to make Jennifer Ely like the most beautiful like she like eclipses all of the other girls except for maybe like Lydia right no but I and I think like that is a challenge with telling the story because Jennifer Ely is like she's gorgeous but she's not like Kira Knightley no she's like young Meryl pretty like young like very sort of like soft skin and like a glowing kind of like Right. And like Susanna Harker also has a certain gummer look about her. Well, and that's the thing is like, that's, it's like, okay, Grace is playing Elizabeth and Mamie is playing Jane. Like, you can sell that to me on paper. (laughs) But on the screen, it's like, I don't know if it necessarily worked. also in this one like they they give jane like enough FaceTime, but like i don't know maybe it's because maybe it's because there's i so mean is it just because she's blonde is she just blonde is like that why everyone thinks that because like that's kind of how it kind of shakes out in in the um 2005 one too like like for sure i could understand like that society like Rosamund Pike is like literally one of the most beautiful human beings on the planet. Literally. I don't know. Like I I I feel like her and Kira Knightley occupy the same world of hotness. But totally. I think it's just like, oh, but she's the blonde one, so she's the hot one. Right. Kira Knightley's yeah. brunette and- with bangs and she reads books. Automatically, like it doesn't matter that she's Kira Knightley, she's brunette and reads, not the hot one. Mary's wearing glasses. She may as well be dead. <laughs> like, just like ship her to the new world. Might as well. Like, oh she's God, useless to you. Glasses. Why isn't she just like working for some family as a governess? Like, her <laughs> out. Exactly. Like, she's she's done. So that was sort of. I know it's. But it's, Jane's blonde, so she's the hot one. It's like a cheap shot, but in a in a world where you keep telling me everyone's value over and over and over again, and you have the hot one not really being the hot one, that right? It's like, it's sort of like this is not the conclusion I come to when presented with the data. Right, and in the two thousand five, and I'm I know I'm not supposed I'm not trying to like compare it to that, but like they use such a shorthand, like you see it with like you know the stuff that's happening in Meriton versus the stuff that's like supposed to be the more high-toned country life uh-huh. like they look straight up poor in the movie 
in the 2005. You know what I mean? Like compared to compared to like the elegance of the, you know, the ball at, um, at Netherfield and like, you know what I mean? Like you, you go into that room, that first like kind of like barn dance and they just look like a bunch of yokels sweating on each other and like wearing, you know, there, there are so many of them wearing Brown and they like use that shorthand to be like, there is a divide between people. And like, um, uh, Caroline Bingley is in like purest ivory white with like perfect red hair, just like disdaining everything she sees. And like, you're like, oh, those are the rich people. Cool. I got it. Yeah. But in this one, you have to, you have to do a little bit more, you know, if you've never, if you've never seen an adaptation or read the book, like, no, the, the Bennett's look pretty well off. I mean, you keep telling me how poor they are, but they look fine. You know, everything Mm. seems fine. This dance is fine. You're fine. Yeah. Have like a whole ham every day for breakfast. Oh my God. That, that massive ham. That was one of the notes that I took. And I'm just like, I just want to eat. I, I want to like have meals the way they do, where like any time of day, no matter what, there are minimum two full roasts <laughs> on the table. For like an <laughs> afternoon nosh breakfast you know you've i've got the breakfast ham uh lamb lamb shanks just everywhere you know full-on rib roast for dinner and a turkey whatever you want (laughs) multiple kinds of potatoes because we've got it in the yard we can just you see that we can go kill it and eat it tonight it's it's not a problem right (laughs) see her walking around She's dinner. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Carl, one of your um, observations on, I think this was the, your, your Jane Eyre episode was about like the shorthand that period pieces like this will do to be like, oh, it's not like our time. It's dirty. Puddle. The characters yes. splash, splash. Like I always think about that when I, um, obviously I, I watched the 2005 version uh when it was on netflix and um the, when the when the sow no 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 it's not a sow it's a it's a it's hog with right? pendulous testicles <laughs> <laughs> and mrs bennett gives it like this approving look like yeah. that is a healthy hog <laughs> that, that'll be tomorrow's you know little snack <laughs> right well and it's also like that's like how they look at these marriages and things are like it's it's all of it is husbandry like that that sow needs that hog just like this daughter needs that bachelor yeah it's so like that moment i'm so glad you brought that moment up because that is like so clear and has like stuck in my mind for so many years of like her just appraising this like hog cock (laughs) (laughs) hog balls Damn. Oh yeah. No, but that's interesting what you're saying about the visual shorthand. I think that is I think the the movie is much more interested in like in creating that kind of shorthand of like these are the rich people, these are the poor people. Mm-hmm. And Caroline Bingley has to just thumb her nose at every single one of them. And like 
I really like the character. I mean, I love Kelly Riley. She's delicious and she's like such a bitch and it's <laughs> glorious. Um, but I really love Anna Chancellor as as Caroline Bingley in this. I mean, I, th- I love her. She always plays like crazy characters um, and is just so good. And, but I like that she's like, she is still she, like, she is that stuck up snooty woman, but she's like, no, I like Jane Bennett. Like she's, she's yeah. like, fun to be around. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, they need to, that's like one of the things I like about the, you, you get this time with these characters. Like you get six hours of, you know, character development with each of these people. So you can see like the Hursts and like all of these other, you know what I mean? Like you get some more time with um, uh, Charlotte Lucas and like all these people. Um, But in the movie they did like, they were like, we gotta, we gotta give you the bullet points and we have to make them bold and we have to make it very, very clear. And they do such a great job of that, of like using those things, like that visual shorthand. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I and I like how Caroline, like she she doesn't like Lizzie, and we know that. But it's it's not strictly speaking because oh she's of a lower class. I how dare like I won't even deign to like speak to her. It's that like Lizzie's smart and can talk back to her and can actually like have an argument with her. And she's like, yeah. no, I like your blonde sister who's like charming and agrees with me all the time. You know, it's just more specific. I, I think like all the performances in this one are like really specific. And maybe that's because they had six hours to do it. Um, but yeah, no, I just feel like all of the characters really have their own points of view and personalities in this rather than being like, you know, symbols of their class totally yeah caroline in the movie has to be all the rich bitches except for catherine de Berg. right and then she's her own her own piece of work <laughs> right right we get darcy in this tub boy <laughs> i i literally just wrote get in that tub darcy <laughs> is Which, that, what is his what is his first name it's fitzwilliam right i never know i never fucking know because Thank you. Okay, i always get you. so confused in that whole sequence with Catherine de Berg, where like because people have told me that his name is fitzwilliam darcy and i'm like no like there's another character whose name is colonel fitzwilliam right right yeah i mean i guess they can both have that name but like i don't know i think ashley do you know can you just correct us right now i i mean if they're related right like they like so i assume that it's like a family name i don't know too many fitzwilliams but his name is fitzwilliam darcy yes yeah but it's like you can never imagine like what is she going to call him when they get, I mean, spoiler alert, they get married. Like what is she? Hi, Fitzwilliam. Like, 
no, you better call him Mr. Darcy until you're both dead. Like <laughs> she'll call him uh Fitz like on Scandal. Oh shit. <laughs> Which was based on Pride and Prejudice. No, I'm just kidding. Honestly, who knows? Could you imagine? Will <laughs> you ever call him Fitzwilliam when she's perfectly and oh. incandescently <laughs> incandescently happy? Yeah. Oh my God. Ugh. That's a tight little, okay. I need to stop talking about the movie. Stop it. <laughs> it doesn't exist. We're only talking about this. Uh. Okay. But can we please get back? Cause now we're like in the sequence where it's just lost in balls and dances. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, which to me is like really the the showcasing of the straight up overhead lighting. <laughs> <laughs> like, like what what was the choice? I want to know what the conversations were. That it was like, okay, uh, we've got all the candles lit in the room. This is a candlelit room, obviously because electricity wasn't around. And then we're the lighting team, like, just in case we're going to put a bright white fluorescent beam above them and light that um, so that you can't tell the direction of light that any light is coming from. Uh, and it's very clear that the candles are not lighting this scene. Sound good? And I guess the director was like, perfect, perfect. I want these people to look washed pallid white as pink as can be well and it is like maybe they thought that they're you know maybe they weren't sure of the audience and they thought that it was just going to be like all sort of like geriatric folk like <laughs> just a lot of seniors and they were like we need to make this bright and as loud as humanly possible like we are going for like CBS sitcom lighting and sound. <laughs> like this is the biggest bang theory. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think it's like, you know, obviously like everything shot in the daytime and everything, like all the exteriors, like gorgeous. That's real sunlight that, you know, and there's like some beautiful shots of like standing by a window and being lit that way. But then you get into these ballrooms and it's like, we cranked the overheads max but we lit some candles as a gesture. Yeah. I wonder, because I think that this was a, a much more expensive production than this kind of a mini series adaptation would have been up to this point. Like this really like raised the bar in a lot of ways, but I, I think that's true. I, maybe they were just like, look at all these beautiful costumes we got to make sure you see them because they were very expensive. So <laughs> look upon them. Totally. And also on that same, like we don't have the budget to like very, very delicately light every scene. We just got to see faces and costumes. But I think that's true. I do think that this, I'd have to go and look at what BBC miniseries were like prior to this. Because I think this was, like, for them, kind of the turning point from those sort of, like, canned stage productions 
to like fully, fully produced six part mm. things. Right. It's so, cra- I don't, I don't think I realized until I started doing some research, like the influence and like the impact of this miniseries is like so far reaching and was so massive, like at the time. I mean, I do think for a lot of people, this is, remains the gold standard of Austin adaptations. Totally. That's, I literally have those exact words written in my notes. Yeah. And like, I get why, you know, I think this is like a really comprehensive adaptation. Yeah. And Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy is just for the ages. Absolutely. He's, I feel like he's so perfect for that role because Darcy is kind of like a paradox of a character, like like to have to play him because you have to be kind of enough of like a cold stuff shirt at the beginning for all of the, you know, drama and conflict to make sense, but also um, soft and, and, and have a kind of a vulnerability about you for that transformation to be um, believable and for him to actually like be a, a lovable hero. And I think Colin Firth is really good at those two poles of Darcy. He can, yeah. you know, he can be like kind of snobbish and awkward and and stiff, but he also like he has like he, he's he's like kind of like a lovely man. Like he, um, you know, like and like Carl, like you mentioned, like him in the tub, and I think that we have those those kind of shots of him earlier on to be like, ah, but also the man underneath. <laughs> You know, like, right. He has that kind of like that baked in aristocrat like coldness. And then he these unguarded moments where he is actually alone, but he's like he sees Elizabeth when he, you know, he gets out of the tub and puts on his robe and he sees her outside just like playing with a dog. And he's like he he gets to sort of like he allows himself to feel something because nobody's watching him, you know, and propriety is so important to Darcy. But like, then you see like the look on his face when she's singing Voike, uh, Voike Sapete. And you're just like, oh my God, he loves the fuck out of her. Like his eyes just sort of like glisten. And he's like, he almost looks like he's about to cry. It's so beautiful. I think one of the things, and we don't see this, but I, I think like my favorite thing we learn about Darcy is like, you know, because we hear so much of the of Lizzie's transformation, her opinion of like it is ultimately coming from him and his own words and his own defense of himself. But for like three quarters of the novel, it's all coming from other people and her trying to reconcile what other people are saying about him uh, versus her experiences with him. And I love uh, when she meets Georgiana and Georgiana is like, oh my God, he will not shut up about you. Like he says, you're an amazing piano player, an amazing singer. It's such a lovely scene. And it's like, cause you know that Georgiana is, she is the only person even beyond Bingley 
who gets like the 100% real yep. Darcy. So, Constantly. and someone like Colin Firth and someone like Matthew McFadden, but like you need an actor who, who you can, even though we don't see it, who you can imagine giving that kind of report to Georgiana, like that he, he can be excited and giddy about somebody. Yes. Uh, when, when all of the defenses are down. And I think that's, I think Colin, Colin Firth is absolutely somebody who you're like, oh, I absolutely can imagine like this dude, like coming home and talking to his little sister about this girl that he is like so obsessed with. I know. Oh, it's so lovely. The way her face changes when he, she hears about like the whole like, oh yeah, no, uh, Mr. Bingley had a friend who told him to like get the fuck out of there because this gal was only after his money. Like when she hears that sort of like Darcy's influence speech and her, just the look on her face, mm -hmm. like how she changes, oof. Is yeah. so beyond fantastic. Mm -hmm. And like, then you see her listening to his proposal and she, that fire is getting like so stoked. And you're like, he doesn't even know what he's in for. Like she, she has oh, yeah. every right to like blow up on him right now. And he thinks that he's being super duper charming. Like, right. I, that's the thing. So what, what's that? That's like end of part three. Oh yeah. I know. I sort of, I haven't even like been going, like going along, along. I didn't even put it on and like, usually I'll put it on and mute it. Um, oh, see, that's what I do. I'm in part two right now. Oh damn. Okay. Caroline right. is talking to Jane, but, but no, but to what you're saying, like in that, yeah, that was a note that I took in this proposal scene where I'm like, hmm. Darcy, like you absolutely did not need to like say the part about oh. how like I know you're way too poor for me and <sighs> everyone's going to be like, what is he doing? But I'm still going to do it because I love you despite <laughs> how poor and stupid your family is. Like right. you could have like left your, that part your out, mom man. and your sisters are really loud and awful. Like you know how awful they are, right? Well, I, I still want to marry you. Doesn't that make me a great guy? <laughs> right, like, no dick. <laughs> like, no. And even if she liked him at that point, I'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> Oof. Yeah, they both do such a great job in that that scene. Yeah. And it's so like beautifully claustrophobic with like her sitting down and him just like standing over her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you half expect her to just like jump up see that chair fly across the room <laughs> and like just po putting her pointer finger in his chest you know what i know about you <laughs> but they can't do that because restraint right Regent right she, there's no there's no explosions anywhere there's no explosions oh okay wait but in part two carl i'm sort of hoping that you can answer this question for me Oh, great. <laughs> um, even after watching as much Downton Abbey as I've watched, I do not understand what an entail is. And I, at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. But here I am asking. Isn't it like the same thing as an inheritance? Like, 
the entail. So if it, if it's like a title and like a bunch of money and who, and like whatever is involved in that. So like property right. goes to whoever like legally it's like written up for. And do you use the term entail specifically when the inheritor is not a child is not the person's offspring? Probably that, I mean, that makes sense. I don't know for sure. Cause that would be, that was true of this and of Downton Abbey. Yeah. It just says, um, it's a settlement of the inheritance of property over a number of generations. So it remains within a family or other kind of like group hmm. a property that is bequeathed. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's that line where Mrs. Bennett is like, I should be ashamed to have an estate that was only tailed upon me. Like as if yeah. there is a disconnect. Totally. Um, which I think I love when she talks about the Collinses throughout. It's just like, oh, like they're going to throw us out to starve in the hedgerows. Like that. this, this <laughs> catastrophizing is one of the most entertaining parts of her character. Yeah. Absolutely. I love how in like one scene she will contradict herself so many times. Oh, yeah. It's just brilliant. And then she goes to the Collinses and meets Lady Catherine de Berg. Oh, wait. Sorry. Can we, like, go back, though? Because oh, please. Um, I, I did want to, to talk for a minute about Mr. Collins upon being rebuffed by Lizzie, who he proposed to. Oh, yes. Suddenly, like like a day later, um, is engaged to to Charlotte, uh, her, her ugly friend, um, and I, I just I just want to talk about this for a second because I, I and I, I say ugly friend just because that is like how she is talked about in in this world is like she's wow. this she's you know she's she's done basically so this was kind of like her her hail mary to make a bit for um for Mr. right Fon- she's she's 27 and single like god help her she might she might as well be dead yeah put her in the ground <laughs> <laughs> but really i feel like if a if a woman tells you like oh i'm totally like i i'm a lizzie like i'm a lizzie bennett like you know that she is Charlotte like you like no you are the normie friend who settles and who (laughs) your husband does his thing and you don't really want to actually be around him and or like this is great I encourage him to like be in his little man cave um much of the day like it's very good exercise for him to like like whatever sport that he likes this is great and I'll sit here in my room for my own particular use and um, we'll just do this for like the next 40 years and that's fine. Completely. Yep, that's 100% true. <laughs> I'd like, that's like with anything like that. Yeah, if, no, if you're, yeah, no, totally right. If you keep, if you insist that you're Lizzie, then you are, you are Charlotte. Yeah. If you insist that you're a Joe, you're a Meg. <laughs> totally 
like go to bed <laughs> without any supper. I just, I just wanted to talk about that though, because I, I like how Charlotte explains her situation and her attitude towards it. Um, it. It makes sense for the way that she is, for the way this actress plays her, for the way that, she, that this series depicts her. Um, there's no like, there's no, like she doesn't really have any shame about it. She's not heartbroken or defending herself. It's just like, like this is just one way and a very common way for that time and for ours to, to build a life. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's pretty, pretty realistic. Right. And it's like the whole, just the whole reality that like, she can't, um, whatever. I'm not going to continue. It's just like a boring thing that everyone knows. <laughs> Women don't have their own money. They're completely relying on men. Like, no shit, Kate. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, what a boring take. It is a boring, it is a boring take. Everyone knows that. I don't need to re restate that fact that, like, did you know that women in the Regency relied upon marriage in order to have any economic freedom at all? And they still didn't? Didn't? Wow. Thank God feminism came and saved us all. And everything's fine now. And everything's fine now. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Cut that because it's boring and... <laughs> useless contribution to this God, Catherine why are you being so boring <laughs> oh my god that's no, you're, you're so right I mean because that this I mean this whole story is just like showing a spectrum of what marriage can be and what, what these relationships can be and that's and that's why you know like that like that's that's why their connection like Lucy and Darcy's is is, is so exciting I mean, like, the fantasy that this story is presenting is, like, oh, my God, a woman who likes her husband. <laughs> right. Like, that is, like, the what? Like, fuck Bridgerton. Like, the sexy romance swept up imagination, head in the clouds of this is, like, they get along. Completely. Well, and that's why I like, I love like a, like a Jane and uh, Bingley thing where it's like, I saw you, I liked you, I said nice things to you, and eventually we got married. <laughs> like, right. It's literally like, we have not had any kind of like, meaningful, like Darcy and Elizabeth, by the time that they like get their shit together, they like know each other pretty so... decently well so well and, and have like, seen many different sides of each other's personalities like Jane and Bingley are literally like you seem like pretty chill so literally <laughs> no you're so right they've seen like the ugly sides of each other like both of them be you know it it's it, it's in the title that you know his pride and her prejudice her pride and his prejudice you know what I mean like you see they see the nastier sides of each other before they see like all the good shit. Right. Um, whereas like you can imagine like Jane and Bingley <laughs> like being 60 and being like, 
I fucking hate the way you chew your food. Fuck <laughs> you. Why are you breathing so loud? Get out of my room. <laughs> I do think that Darcy and Lizzie are more, are, that relationship is on a more solid foundation than Jane and Bingley. <laughs> yeah, totally. Personally. But that, maybe I'm just like very cynical. <laughs> but you better believe that Wickham and Lydia have the best sex of all three of those couples. They are- oh, For sure. They are turning it out. In that fetid like, room, just like ha- having this whole like, yeah, they're just descending into. Yeah. This- and it's all her. It's all driven by her. <laughs> Completely. Like that last shot of them in that little final montage where he's like drinking wine and like exhausted. <laughs> She's in the bed like, mm come back to bed i'm literally ready for round three like yeah <laughs> he's just like what have i done get your bearing and get back over here because <laughs> oh my god can i tell you guys something i um i was i was just thinking like what you're saying with jane and bingley not really knowing each other that, that well at all when they get married and just like how much these characters, like their whole emotional worlds would have been just like so, and maybe not maybe not, not, not so much as it would have been in the Victorian era where like morality really like clamps down a lot more oppressively um, on folks, but like, like, like you wouldn't really be able to just like have friendships with um, with the opposite sex and how like, I feel like period pieces like this are my gay root because I, you know, just like watching like girls in nineties giggling by candlelight, I think must have just like stirred something within me long ago. <laughs> like that, I don't know. That has always been a very, like I've, I've, I've always like had a very specific way of seeing um content like this oh five billion percent (laughs) yeah there's a scene and i am a very gay man there's a scene in the 2005 one where it's keira knightley and rosamund pike and they're sort of like they're giggling and they're under the covers and like the camera pans away to the window and each time i'm like why do i want them to kiss so bad Oh my God, have you guys ever read that um, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick piece, um, Jane Austen and, and the Masturbating Girl? No. No. But I do. <laughs> this was in the early 90s. Um, she was this uh, like literary scholar who was really big in like gender studies, women's studies, and, and like queer theory. Mm. Um, a lot of it's about sense and sense of, me, sense and sensibility, but she does kind of make part of that piece is like tracing a kind of homo eroticism between the sisters in, in sense and sensibility, and um, yeah, that 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 was an essay that was just like this total lightning rod for the culture wars at that time because all of the kind of more like conservative critics were like, oh my god, look at what these 
identity politics people are doing to poor spinster Jane Austen. They're talking about masturbation. They're talking about lesbianism. Like, are the shades of the academy to be thus polluted? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I got to find that. Yeah, I I read it a a long time ago. So I, I don't. You know, I, I, I certainly won't bog us down with, with theory anyway, but um, yeah, I, Jane Austen, I, I've like always approached it from like a pretty um, sapphic angle. Amen. As you should. Well, that makes me think of like, and I, I brought this up in um, our Jane Eyre episode about this like great piece uh, this auto straddle piece that came out about Gentleman Jack and how like how important that series was to like literally specifically me myself as someone who like is obsessed with period pieces loves the Brontes loves Jane Austen um, but like never fully was like an I want to be Lizzie girl and like watching Gentleman Jack and just like the character of Ann Lister and like, oh yeah, no, I wanted to be Mr. Darcy. (laughs) Yes. Like I wanted to be the like aloof, awkward, you know, gruff rake in the corner. I mean, Mr. Darcy's not a rake, but like, that was where, in terms of like who I like as a you know adolescent trying to figure out what sort of sexual attention I wanted to to get in my life, I was like, I want whatever energy he has. <laughs> it took me a very long time to get there to realize that that's what I was going for. But I'm so but once did. I got there, I did. Fu- it was like, oh yeah, no, that's. I want to be I want to be Mr. Darcy walking across the field in my big oh, god. Oof. There's nothing more beautiful than that. That is just yeah, prime real estate. <laughs> so that was where because I also think like in terms of like the queerness, like sapphic or otherwise of of Jane Austen and and this kind of thing because this is another thing we brought up in the um in the Jane Eyre episode is that like, I do think that there is something about a a romance like this that is like particularly sweeping to queer people because of like, you know, the act of needing to interpret and obsessively try to interpret gestures. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the pursuit of somebody romantically and like having to do so much deciphering of how somebody feels about you and being, and having to get through this, all these questions and and maybe mistaken conceptions about the other person. Like that's an extremely queer experience. Like, like the courtship of Darcy and Elizabeth is much, is, in the context of this, like a queer courtship versus Jane and Bingley, which is like an aggressively heterosexual courtship. 
there's no there's no deciphering they have to do with each other. It's like we know that our job is to get married. Uh, so you seem nice. We seem compatible. Bada bing, bada boom. Right. Yeah, Versus no, Liz. The queerest thing about their relationship is the is the amount of restraint that they both have to show. You know what I mean? Like, and that's something we talked about in the Jane Eyre episode. Like, it is all that sleuthing. And it's also this, like, just the restraint you have to, like, you can't look at them for too long. You never touch them. You know what I mean? Right, right, you right. Can't say flat out, like, I think you're pretty. Like, you have to find these weird, sneaky ways of right. showing your interest. Right. And like for both of them, you know, having to go through this process of, you know, especially on Darcy's part of like, I don't, I know how I feel about this person, but I can't figure out how they feel about me. And I've got, you know, I've, I've got to figure out a whatever way I can to try and suss that out. And like on Lizzie's side, it's like, you know, who is this? Like, it, you know, I, I feel like I've read him wrong, but maybe I haven't read him, you know, like they, they have to read each other. So, uh, you know, on such a deeper level and they have to sift through so much more about each other to get, to get to a place where they can be vulnerable with each other. And that to me is like very queer. It's such a queer experience. Do you agree with that, Ashley? Yeah, no, I think that's really beautifully put. I, I totally agree. Um, we had to suss out a lot about each other. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not true. Like, I feel like in our case, you know, we met at a party. We met again at that same party a couple months later and then like started texting all the time. But even in all that texting and like building like like every day for most of the day and still being like, I don't even know if she likes me. And then like truly like the day of our first date, I was like with a friend and I was like, I don't even know if this is a date. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know if I'm reading any of this correctly. And then like, not until I arrived at the restaurant was I like, oh, okay. I think this is a date. Yeah. You had like a really nice outfit on and there was like candlelight and you sat down and we're like, how are you? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> anyway. Pride and Prejudice. Oh, you you were about to get into the Lady Catherine de Berg of it all. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> I love Lady Catherine. Like she's she's such an amazing like her and Mr. Collins like bring camp to to the proceedings. You know, like Lady Catherine de Berg is like a very um 
very kind of like Lady Bracknell, like kind of like drag type of role, you know? Yeah, no, she's wonderful. That, that daughter is- Oh, dear God. Okay. Brutal, brutal. Like a, like an image from a Victorian PSA against like the dangers of masturbating too much. <laughs> she is a gashly crumb tiny, just hideous ignorance and want beneath the robes of the ghost of Christmas present is what that girl looks like. God bless her. They they did her dirty. Yeah. Little to Berg, they made her look <laughs> lost. They made her look fucking wasted. She's like sitting there, like trying to keep herself upright. Like they must have been like, you need to make a strong choice and we don't care what it is. So she was like, she's taken all this cold medicine and she's just trying to stay awake. Like she's tipping and tilting and like her eyes are closing. It's hysterical. And like the dark circles and the oof. Yeah, they they made little DeBerg look real. Real rough. Yeah. She just snuffles hideously. <laughs> yeah. No, just uh, like her and Mary just were given nothing, like no credit. Like, sorry. You're the uglies. <laughs> well, and they like specifically uglified both of them. Like, oh, yeah. both of like, the makeup is just. Oof. Yeah. It's too bad because like in um in the Joe Wright version, like Little Deberg is a really quite beautiful woman, but she has dark hair and glasses. So like, you know, we read <laughs> right. Ugly. Um but yeah, they, she's really, they really she's, she's not- still she's still model thin in that version too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like every woman in that movie. She still absolutely like does editorial. Oh, completely. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the distinction that like, like Jane is like the print model. The rest are the editorial models. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where was that like, Chanel spread where was that like Vivian Westwood spread with just all four of them like Jenna Malone's just like bones sticking I know. out I wonder I wonder if they ever did I mean because like Kira Knightley became like Miss Chanel soon after that but Kira Knightley was already like launched into the stratosphere of fame at that point right but yeah wherever well, the like here's the Jenna Bennett Malone had been around for so long say what Jenna Malone had been around for so long. Too. I know, like of all the people in that, I'm like, no, Jen, like Jenna Malone is like a known figure. They were like, so we're bringing in an American. And they were like, who? <laughs> they were like, like, Jenna Malone, because she's the only Malone. actress crazy enough to play Lydia. Well, and to play like a, a Lydia that is significantly older than Kitty in this, in that version. Oh my God, I know. Reason. Like, why is she, why is she basically the third child and not, the youngest like she's supposed to be but you i'm know. pretty sure wait i want to look this up i think jenna malone may have been older than kira knightley in that movie that would not surprise me at all okay jenna malone is 36 oh, shit. oh and carrie mulligan's 35 carrie mulligan's a little older than i thought 
How old? Well, they sort of did that in the Greer Garson. My God, Kira Knightley's 35. So all of these actors playing sisters are the same age. (laughs) Except Rosamund Pike, who is uh, 41. So she was six years old. She was six years older than Kira Knightley playing Jane, who was supposed to be like one, one, maybe two years older than Elizabeth. Because isn't the ages go like... Jane and Lizzie are like 20 to 22. And then Mary is like 18. And then like Kitty and Lydia are like 16 and 17. I think Um, Lydia's 15, right? Like she's quite young. Yeah, Lydia turns 16 like while she's in Brighton. Gross. Right? No. Oh my god. Well. Oh, here we go. So part three is is Lizzie with the Collinses and and Catherine de Berg and we've talked about the proposal where Darcy proposes. One last thing I'll say about the proposal is that like I comparing it to when Mr. Collins proposes for whom like she has like, you know, some amount of contempt. Mm-hmm. She's not like, you know, like she doesn't really care about him. So when she, you know, she's, she is insulted by, by you know, him, you know, really pressing the issue and, and being like, well, you know, another offer may never be <laughs> given to you but she doesn't really need to put him in his place that much Mm -hmm. so thinking about that like her response to Darcy is all the more stirring because she you know she could have just done the same thing and like we we know that she can be tactful and she can be restrained um I I just think I think it's so beautiful the way that she sets him down because it's not just I think to have the pleasure of being like you know, as you said, Carl, like putting her finger on his chest, like, do you, or, 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 or Kate, if you said this, you know, like, I, I know this about you, and I'm going to really tell you to your face what I think about you. It's not just like, you know, to, to really want to humiliate him, but I think also comes from, you know, her attraction to him and, and, and starting, I think, to, to care about him as well. Because otherwise, you know, like we've seen her, we've seen her handle a, a proposal she doesn't want before Mm -hmm. it's like being yeah being hurt or insulted by somebody you don't care about it doesn't hurt that much being hurt or insulted by somebody you care about hurts way more Mm -hmm. like she feel that that is so much more felt from darcy being like you're a pig but i want to marry you like like (laughs) oh my god that is so much more insulting than just you know i don't know Right, and not something that she can just be like, okay, thanks, but no thanks. Right. You know, she's like, no, I'm turning you down and I need you to know why I'm turning you down and why you're a piece of shit right now. You know, like, she doesn't, she, she she leaves Mr. Collins with his dignity in a way that she is like not interested in doing with Mr. Darcy. 
Well, and she goes out of her way to like keep him from like, she's like, no, I would not insult a respectable man like you by like toying with you and saying like, no, when I actually mean yes, like I'm not going to do that to you. And you need to stop talking before you dig yourself any deeper. Yeah. Because I could go off on you, but I really, really don't want to. Right. Like I could call you ridiculous right now. I could call you ugly. all these things, but I'm holding back. And with Darcy, it's like, not only did you insult me five times in the past two minutes, you (laughs) ruined my sister's happiness and you've insulted my entire family. Right. And and I would like you to know that that's the reason I'm saying no. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I feel like the Wickham stuff, you know, like she's attracted to Wickham and is sympathetic to his story. That I mean, at, at this point, like that is an afterthought. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's just like a little, just like, a, that's just like another little shitty thing that she knows about him for no reason. Right. And yet that's the only one that Darcy can really like address later on. He's like, well, these are the facts. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of it, you were actually pretty spot on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he he doubles down in his letter to her. Yeah. Like, like no, actually, I, I am glad that I, <laughs> that I, I separated Jane and Bingley, and I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> well, so that brings us to the end of part three. So also, hello, we, uh, Lucy Davis. Like Lucy Davis just being in here super casually. Oh my God, I know. Yeah. So Dawn funny? from the office, from the British office. And um, one of the aunts from Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Oh my and God, that's right. That's right. She's like Hilda, right? Yes. Yeah, and yeah, she's yeah. Princess, Paula McCar- Princess Paula McCartney on Bob's Burgers, on an episode of Bob's Burgers. Amazing. So amazing. <laughs> oh. Well, so with that, shall we wind down part one here? Yeah. That's the end of part, the first half of the BBC's Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Darcy has proposed to Elizabeth and been soundly rebuffed. Brutally rebuffed.